Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, thank God for the Holy Scriptures. It is wonderful to think that we are near the end of time, yet it is very sobering. God has a plan for your life and mine specifically for these last days. Troublous times are coming upon us, and we need to know how to deal with them by faith. The life of Joseph gives us great encouragement and a practical instruction in what to do when we are faced with great difficulties. We need the story of Joseph to help us find our way through the dark times of our lives and through the darkest period of earth's history. Listen now as we continue this powerful story of God's hidden hand in the life of one who trusted in His promises. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful love for us. Thank you for giving us the lessons we need in stories of your dealings with our spiritual forefathers. As we approach the end of time and the coming crisis, please help us clearly understand how we too can trust you. It doesn't come easy. We're often afraid to trust your providence and we try to depend on human resources for our needs instead of upon you. But a time is coming when we will be stripped of all human support and have nothing but your promises to sustain us. Oh, Father, help us to understand this and learn from the life of Joseph the principles that will help us overcome by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 1, verse 6. It reads, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. While this is about the prophet John, it is also what God did with Joseph. Remember Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis 45, verse 8? So now it was not you that sent me hither but God, he said. In reality, we are all sent from God. This gives us a sense of purpose, a sense of conviction, a destiny. There's a definite plan for your life, a definite place in God's work. And if you are faithful to do what he gives you, no matter how humble, you will be rewarded. Often we never think of our life mission ourselves. God has to show it to us. And he often does this through difficult experiences. If you think that you are not important enough for God to have something specific for you to do, think again. He has been planning your place for a long time. You may not even know it, but you may be in that place right now. If you claim God's promises, you also claim your destiny, your purpose, and your divinely appointed work. Make no mistake about it. You are called to be part of God's great overarching plan. If we accept this, we can then understand that anything that happens to us is part of that plan and that God is working out the providence of His will. We can rest assured that all things work together for good to them that love God. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold to their rivals for a price of a slave, 20 pieces of silver. Right when Joseph was exalted in his father's house, he was cut down. Why do you think God cut him down? To humble him, of course, but also through affliction to strengthen his character, build his spiritual power, and give him tools to make him successful. There could be no better training for Joseph. This is a curriculum that no earthly school can give or even think of. God's training is often mysterious. He was working for Joseph's brothers too. And while Joseph was to enter the life of a slave in the spiritual wilderness of Egypt, his brothers, on the other hand, were going to experience a spiritual wilderness of guilt. 
As we learned in our first episode, the Ishmaelites were descendants of Abraham too, and therefore they were half-cousins of Jacob's sons. They were not part of the chosen family of God. They had been sent out of the home, and hence they were outcasts and were still bitter about it. They became rivals to Jacob's family, and they are still struggling with that even today. What an insult to Joseph and to Jacob their father to sell Joseph to these adversarial relatives. Imagine the hypocrisy in trying to comfort their father's anguish after they had caused it by lying to him. They had to live with the gnawing guilt for more than 20 years as they kept their secret. Imagine the guilty feelings every time they saw him. They couldn't even think about him without remembering their lying charade. It is the same with us. When we sin, the Holy Spirit keeps it before us until we confess it and forsake it. That is part of overcoming. Even if we forget the details, we cannot escape the guilt continually gnawing at our hearts. As Joseph trudged along, chained to other slaves to prevent escape, he no doubt secretly hoped that a miracle would happen. His father would hear of the treason and send his men to rescue him. Would it have been good if there had been a rescue? There would have been great rejoicing in Hebron, but great frustration in heaven. God's purpose would have been thwarted. Certainly God would have found another way, but Joseph might not have been part of it. And Joseph might never have become the man he was destined to be. As hope of rescue faded with the distant hills near Hebron, Joseph faced the prospect of never seeing his family again. Tears of agony filled his eyes, yet he sensed God's presence as he looked at the stars at night and thought about the promises that God had given to his fathers. How could all this misfortune fit into those promises? It just didn't seem to make sense. But as Joseph searched his memory, he remembered what God told his great-grandfather Abraham. Know for a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. That's Genesis one thirteen and 14. Could it be that he was the beginning of the affliction spoken of to Abraham? Could it be that Joseph was to lead the way to the land that is not theirs? Could it be that this terrible event was part of that divine purpose? What cheer this brought to Joseph! Imagine having the sense that you are part of God's great plan. We can have that sense, you know. God will give it to you if you ask Him to. We all have a significant part to play, even if it doesn't seem significant. Could it be that the God of heaven, the friend of Abraham, Isaac, and of his father Jacob, was putting Joseph in a position so that he could become his God too? In a more personal way than Joseph could have ever imagined? Perhaps he too would have a special destiny, and this horrible experience would somehow become a blessing. Though Joseph was forcefully separated from his family and his church, he could still worship God faithfully. When we are cut off from our friends, family, or church, when we are alienated from those we know, from the familiar and secure, from the comfortable and easy, could it be that God is calling us to a personal, freestanding experience with Him that we could not otherwise have? Could it be that God is speaking to us in the dark shadows, calling us to Himself as a special possession? I believe it, don't you? More than anything else, God longs to enter a holy, personal, connected experience with you and me. Injustice, trials, difficulties, pain, hardship, and mistreatment are God's way of entering into fellowship with us and for us to enter into His sufferings. He ordains difficult times 
so that we can let go of human support. Do we need that? You bet we do. Does it hurt us? Not really. Instead, it opens opportunities to have a new and much deeper experience with God. We should not look upon trials as negative. They give us a new perspective. They take the scales off of our eyes. They help us wake up. They should not discourage us. They should energize our faith in the one who ordained them. God often puts us in circumstances where we learn to trust him independently. This is a great lesson we all must learn. You can't even depend on your connection even with godly people for your experience with God. You have to love and worship God yourself. Even if you are pushed out of fellowship with God's people, you don't have to become bitter and angry. You can use the experience to go deeper with God. He will provide alternatives for you. So long as you nurse your wounds, you will never develop that deepness. Joseph accepted what he could not change as from God, and he determined that no matter what happened, he would be faithful and let God deal with the consequences. Perhaps there was something hidden in this dark moment. Perhaps God was working in the shadows in a way that Joseph could not comprehend at that time, and that he needed to have faith and trust that God knew what he was doing. Joseph took courage in the promises and determined in his heart that he would always trust the God of his fathers. God had now become his God. Joseph was stripped of his princely coat, but he was not stripped of his princely character. He determined to do the right thing no matter the consequences. Joseph overcame his discouragement through faith in God's promises, which he now accepted as being made to him. Do you think those promises are made to you as well? Sure they are. God offers them to you just as he offered them to Joseph. And often he brings you through dark times so that you can look at the stars and accept these same promises as your own, and most importantly, accept Accept the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as your own personal friend. Moreover, God had given Joseph dreams, too. He could not forget that. God had spoken to him directly through them. Perhaps God has spoken to you, too. Perhaps he has given you a vision or a dream of how you can work for him. This is not by chance. Now we need to let God work out those purposes in His way, and in His time. God promises to be with us in test and trial, just like He was with our spiritual fathers in their tests and trials. He will walk by your side, just as He did with Joseph. Imagine that. The same God that was with Joseph is still with us. It is so comforting to know that there is a God who is bigger than all our troubles, and who has been there long before us, and will be there long after us, and that he has a particular plan and place for us. In all of our afflictions, he will stand by our side and give us hope and a destiny that we could never have if it weren't for the betrayal, injustice, and mistreatment. It is his providence that gives both the trial and the strength to go through it. Let us go one step further. In Matthew 24, verse 10, Jesus tells us that when the crisis comes upon God's people, many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. The life of Joseph is a lesson for those living at the end of time. Jesus warned us that we shall be betrayed. What is betrayal? It is the abuse of trust and confidence. You can't be betrayed by someone you don't know or someone who is your enemy. You can be attacked or assaulted, but you can't be betrayed. You can only be betrayed by someone whom you thought was a friend, a close confidant. A family member can betray you too. But it must be someone whom you know well and who knows you well. You can only be betrayed by one in whom you trust with your secrets.
That is betrayal. And Jesus tells us that you are likely to be betrayed. Those who have been your close companions may well be those who will be instrumental in putting you in prison or some other pit, like a set of trying circumstances. Perhaps you know already how that feels. The temptation is to retaliate, become bitter, and lose your peace. Have you ever had that happen? I have. It happens to all of us. We need betrayal, injustice, and affliction. They are for our good. But let us go yet one step further. Jesus was cast into the pit of the universe, this sin-plagued world. He was betrayed by his brethren. He too was sold for the price of a slave, thirty pieces of silver. But he trusted in his father's promises and overcame through faith. Joseph is a type of Christ and an example for us in the last days. Joseph was about to experience even more hardship. God had ordained that he should be a slave in Egypt for a time. Joseph didn't know what was going to happen to him, yet he trusted God and believed that the promises were for him personally. So his attitude was very improved by the time he arrived in Egypt. He determined to make the best of circumstances and see what God would do with him. God was about to train him for his great work in life that would actually fulfill his dreams and become his life work. Joseph would not have naturally chosen this pathway. That is impossible. But God knew that it was exactly what he needed. What he had learned at his grandfather's knee had given him enough preparation so that he could comprehend much larger and more difficult lessons. His early training and his faith in God's personal promises to him held him steady and confident through the rapidly unfolding and terrifying events. Now God was going to change his heart and expand his capacity to love and forgive. It is through being mistreated that we learn how to forgive. Forgiveness is a very important lesson, and in giving Joseph this experience, God was teaching him about himself and how to forgive like God forgives. God was now teaching Joseph how to walk with God and to think like God thinks. Do you think that God does that to us? Does God give us affliction so that we can understand how God thinks and how He forgives? God's plan was to rapidly increase the family of Jacob into a nation. It was important that Joseph, the future patriarch, understand human heartache so that he could be compassionate and gentle. Joseph's experience was hard, but it was productive. The harder the experience, my friends, the more God has in store for you. When you go through difficulties, think of them as training for a greater and more comprehensive work. But there is more. We need to realize that no one can thwart the plans of God. If we oppose God's work, we only strengthen it, and we do it quite unintentionally and unconsciously. Those who mistreat you or betray you are only being used by God to accomplish the very purpose in you that they wish to prevent. Carlisle B. Haynes, in his book God Sent a Man, makes this comment. Joseph's brothers were sure that when they sold him into slavery, they had made the fulfillment of his dreams impossible. They gleefully congratulated one another. But that is not at all what they had done. Rather, what they had done was to push their brother one step toward his elevation. But they did not know it. They only came to learn it nearly a quarter of a century later. Joseph's brothers thought that they were going to teach Joseph a lesson once and for all. But God took Joseph off by himself, away from his brothers for a while, so that he could teach him a few lessons of his own. And then God planned to bring Joseph's brothers down to Egypt so that they could see what God had done with Joseph and so that he could teach them a few lessons too. God learn, turns everything around, doesn't he? Injustice is a small but important piece of the picture 
God is painting with your life. Joseph's brothers had their own plans. Reuben thought he was going to save Joseph from being killed and free him to go home. Judah thought that he was going to send Joseph into the oblivion of slavery. Their anger, malevolence, hatred, envy, cruelty were their own. But God's plan took all their evil, complicated mess, their conflicting plans, and turned them around for their own benefit. Isn't that incredible? God plans to use the hard times in your life to benefit the very ones who inflicted them on you. And if they repent, He will save them too. What shocked His brothers more than anything was what God did with Joseph. They never expected that God would take Joseph beyond their reach and then use him to save them. They never expected to meet him again. But God rescued Joseph from his brothers so he could prepare him to be their savior. Had Joseph remained at home, their issues might never have been resolved. The same thing happened to Jesus. He became the Savior of the world because He was abused and crucified by His own people. The shock will come when they see Him on the throne of the universe. Their malevolent actions have become the very means by which millions are saved for eternity. Their injustice became the remedy for sin, and in it He drew all men to Himself, the very thing they were trying to prevent. When Joseph arrived in Egypt, the bustling life no doubt captured his attention. It was quite different from his quiet home life as a shepherd. Egypt was the most developed nation of the day. The Egyptians had already developed the great pyramids. Their engineering, architecture, language, laws, and agriculture were highly developed. The great cities were thronging with people. Could God have some purpose for Joseph in this place as the lowest of all people, a slave? Joseph was taken to the slave market where, like all the other slaves, he was placed in a position where he could be seen. There was something different about Joseph, though. He stood erect and confident, yet his eyes had the look of humility. He must have greatly impressed the auctioneer. As the crowd milled around waiting for the slaves to be offered for sale, suddenly the crowd parted and opened a path to the front. There came a man of obvious wealth and princely authority. His bodyguards carefully scanned the crowd for any threats to his security, and as he came to the platform where the slaves were standing, the auctioneer hurried to meet him. He knew who he was, and today was going to be a good day with a good sale. He had a good-looking slave to offer him, and he knew he could exact a high price to keep the slave from the open market. Potiphar had come to the market to find a new slave. No doubt his ever-expanding wealth meant that he had need of new slaves to help him care for his properties and possessions. Potiphar sees the strong, handsome young man standing on the block. He is impressed, but he can't put his finger on why. It is a little mysterious, but he senses that he must have that slave. No doubt the Holy Spirit impressed him that here was a good bargain at any price. Little does he realize how good a deal he has gotten. Scripture tells us in Genesis 39 verse 1 that Potiphar was captain of the guard of Pharaoh. He was an officer and a very powerful one. This was perhaps one of the most important persons in Egypt. Potiphar was in charge of palace security, and it was his responsibility to keep Pharaoh from being assassinated. It was his responsibility to carry out the wishes of the king concerning the palace, and therefore the captain of the guard must not be discontented with anything. So Potiphar was paid very well and was richly rewarded for his services in other ways. He had an enormous palace of his own, chariots and other amenities to make life comfortable and pleasant. He was probably brought into the inner council of the government and often consulted by Pharaoh personally. Pharaoh needed him to participate in decision-making so as to keep him on side.
He stood close to Pharaoh in the general council and was respected and honored by all. There could be no better estate than Potiphar's for Joseph to get a close-hand understanding of what it meant to run a sophisticated nation like Egypt. God placed him in the palace of Potiphar to put him in close proximity to Pharaoh, where he could watch and learn the ways and means of Egypt. No doubt once Joseph became governor of Potiphar's estates, he had plenty of opportunity to be around the palace of Pharaoh and observe the proceedings and discussions. With the haggling completed, Potiphar has paid plenty. Joseph was taken to Potiphar's palace and given his first tasks. They may have been very humble, but Joseph did them with such care and efficiency that Potiphar was impressed that here was a slave that he could entrust with larger responsibilities. He saw things that needed to be done and respectfully made suggestions to Potiphar. He was industrious. Potiphar had the impression that Joseph was determined to help him. Other slaves only did what they were told, but Joseph went way beyond and did the tasks better and more complete than anyone else had ever done them. Joseph wanted to win his confidence and then, if possible, tell him about his God. Verse 2 says that the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. What a testimony! Wouldn't you like to have that testimony about you? What would it mean to have the Lord with you? Joseph lived two lives. One was on the surface that everyone could see. The other was a secret life. It was a mysterious life, something that made him different. His secret life was a life of communion with the God of his fathers and his personal God. Here is a big lesson. No matter what our outward circumstances we can be free in our heart. No matter how troubled the difficulties we face, the secret inner life is what helps us navigate through them. What does it mean to prosper? Prosperity is not an outward sign or a visible symbol or badge. It is not a cross of gold or genuflection. It is not in money, houses, lands, cars, or other assets. There are many ways that the Lord prospers His servants. He prospers them by impressions of the mind, suggestions of thought, prompting of choices, leading to decisions. He prospers them by giving them resolution of the will and a high and noble feeling. But He prospers them most by direction of their steps, their selection of words, the right answer at the right time. Sometimes it means he will prompt them to silence when silence is better than words and prompt their choice of words when to speak is better than silence. He influences their body language, the glance of the eye, the small courtesies. Those around them feel better for having been in their presence. They feel blessed. Have you ever had these kind of things happen to you? That's what God did with Joseph. And Joseph prospered in the house of Potiphar. Those who live in external things have no real prosperity, even though they may have a large bank account. If a man must total up assets to determine prosperity, he really doesn't have it. He has no true conception of what real prosperity is. Prosperity cannot be gained in any institution of learning. God trains for prosperity by mysterious methods and processes that human schools never think of and which human beings often don't recognize as from God. The hidden religious life cannot really be completely hidden. On the surface, there is something noticed by those nearby. It can only be explained on the grounds of an experience with God a walk with God, a calmness and serenity when all around is chaos, a demeanor that pervades all the circumstances of life. Joseph was a slave, but the Bible says he was prosperous. No circumstances outside the possible blessing of God in prosperity. No circumstance can prevent prosperity. 
pretend you're a man or a woman without any spiritual discernment. Joseph was a slave. Where's his prosperity? He's chattel property. There's no prosperity there, according to human thinking. He is in bondage. He has no time for himself, no liberty of action or choice. He was cut off from his father and his home. But Joseph was living in the realm of the Spirit. He was being sustained by the Spirit of God. And when you aren't living in the realm of the Spirit, you aren't really living at all. When you aren't being sustained by the Spirit, you can't really live. You become the plaything of circumstances. And Joseph was not living externally. If he had been, his days would have been full of sorrow, anxiety, fear, tears, and despair. Not Joseph. He lived in God. His expectation was in God, not in man. He learned to give up on expectations from man. Verse 3 says that his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Even Potiphar could see that his own prosperity was in part dependent on Joseph's wise use of resources. Potiphar's confidence grew so strong that he made him overseer of his house. Chapter 39, verse 6 says that he had so much confidence that he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. Don't fear the lowly tasks, my friends. Heaven doesn't count prosperity by class, stature, or income. When you're faithful in the little things, God will see to it that you are given more responsibility. He will increase your influence and strengthen the confidence of others in your work. Joseph is better off than his brothers. He is a slave, but his soul is free. His brothers are free, but slaves to guilt, a far more galling taskmaster. Joseph rose very quickly to become governor of Potiphar's house. But he was not to stay there. God was about to change his circumstances again. He was about to be cut down again. When someone is prosperous in the Lord, Satan is busy to destroy him. Do you think Satan wanted to foil the plans of God for Israel? He would if he could. Egypt was a wicked, godless place with much immorality. But Joseph wasn't stained by it. The court was full of intrigue, and there was plenty of such things going on. Rumors were always going around. Mrs. Potiphar was also of little moral foundation. She was used to getting her way and wanted Joseph. One day she found Joseph and offered him something she thought he would want. Lie with me, she said in verse 7. Her temptation was not really an appeal to his flesh, but to his station as a slave and his desire for freedom. Her suggestion was weighted with the idea that he would be able to throw off slavery and perhaps take over his master's position. Maybe he could become a man of honor. This was the real temptation for Joseph. Yes, he was a youth with all his hormones, but though his flesh was a temptation, it wasn't the worst or most difficult temptation. Mrs. Potiphar must have been a beautiful woman. No man of rank or station such as Potiphar would be without a beautiful woman at his side. Mrs. Potiphar pressed him day after day, the scriptures say. No doubt she dressed so as to attract Joseph's carnal humanity. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 217, says, With inexpressible anxiety, angels looked upon the scene. Would he be true to God? Would he stand the test? Joseph tried to argue with Mrs. Potiphar. Verse 8 and 9 says, He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, my master walketh not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But she wouldn't let up. So 
Joseph avoided the house, but Mrs. Potiphar bided her time, knowing that Joseph had come had to come into the house sooner or later. She also thought what to do if he refused her proposition again. One day he came in to do his business out of necessity. Verse 12 says that Mrs. Potiphar caught him by his garment, his coat. He left it and fled and got him out. Joseph's loyalty to God was reflexive. He turned and fled immediately. Shouldn't our loyalty to God be reflexive too? Spurned, Mrs. Potiphar thought of revenge. So she screamed. She told the men that came running that Joseph had tried to rape her. She lied about what had happened so that a good strong rumor would spread around the palace before Potiphar came home. She determined to destroy him if he wouldn't yield. A slave could easily be executed for the most trivial crime. Meanwhile, Joseph left the house with his mind full of confusion. What would happen now? Would he be executed? Should he run? Should he hide? What should he do? This was a serious moment of reflection. But again, Joseph remembered the promises of God and decided to trust Him and not take matters into his own hands. God had delivered him before. Verse 16 says that she laid up Joseph's coat until Potiphar came home. Again, he is threatened with death by his coat. Ironic, isn't it? Joseph's coat always seems to get him into trouble. Potiphar no doubt suspected something amiss. Things just didn't add up. He couldn't reconcile this report with Joseph's past record. It just wasn't like Joseph to do something like that. He also knew the manipulative character of his wife, and he probably suspected something, but didn't want to confront it and create marriage problems, or worse, a court scandal. But in any case, he wasn't going to have Joseph killed. Maybe he thought he would have the opportunity to restore his best asset to his honor and position again. Besides, he loved Joseph as his own son. How did Joseph respond to Potiphar? Strangely, we have no record. Joseph must have remained silent about the truth of the matter. Why? Joseph knew that he could not justify himself without making Mrs. Potiphar look bad and cause a lot of pain for Potiphar himself. And this he could not do. Potiphar was the one man in Egypt that had really shown him kindness. It would bring Potiphar dishonor and probably only make matters worse. Again, he was trapped by circumstances. He would be the scapegoat. He also knew that Potiphar would naturally be disposed to accept his wife's version so as not to create scandal or jeopardize his household. But deep down in his heart, he wouldn't trust her because he knew and loved the character of Joseph. So if he told him what really happened, Potiphar was likely to accept his own story and that that would be too painful for Potiphar. Joseph's silence was long-term, through at least three long years in prison. He took ignominy and punishment for his master's sake and ultimately the salvation of Egypt and his own family. Likewise, Christ also took ignominy and punishment for his father's sake and for the salvation of souls. Potiphar sent him to the place where the king's prisoners were kept. Being captain of the guard, this prison was where the royal prisoners were kept and probably built underground and on his own premises, directly under Potiphar's control. Joseph is again innocent, but again he suffers. He did the right thing and got him out, but he was punished. How discouraging to his nature! But did Joseph lose confidence in God? Did he complain about his troubles? Did he grow bitter? No. Bewildered, maybe. Confused, maybe. Cast down, maybe. But he did not lose his confidence in God. He had been delivered before. The Lord would see to it again. So he held to his principles. 
Somehow in the darkness, Joseph knew he was part of a larger plan. God was indeed at work, and so he laid it all in God's hands. Can you do that? Is it hard for you? It is for me. Why was everything so wrong? Just when he has come out of difficulty and is governor of Potiphar's house, he's back in trouble again. Does your life seem like that sometimes? Why did God put Joseph in prison? Wasn't there a better way? God knows what he's doing. This was Joseph's final exam. If God had left Joseph as governor of Potiphar's house, he might never have been in a position to be prime minister of Egypt. Pharaoh's attention might never have been drawn to Joseph. But more than that, God wanted to be sure that Joseph didn't get the credit for what God was about to do. If Joseph had gone from Potiphar's house to prime minister, he might have been tempted to think that it was by his own qualifications that he arose to that height. But even more, Joseph needed to have some finishing off in his training for prime minister. God knows everything. He doesn't make mistakes. Every move is a controlled move. Do you trust God like that in your life? Verses 21 to 23 tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. Isn't that wonderful? God can be with you no matter what your circumstances and can make you prosper. The keeper of the prison saw that he had a different spirit and was actually more concerned about the other prisoners than himself. So soon Joseph arose to be the governor of all in the prison. Verse 23 says that the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper must have gone on holiday, while Joseph prospered. Well, there is more to come, but Joseph's experience is something we all need to understand because it happens to us too. We don't have to be discouraged. We don't have to be despondent. We can claim the promises of God in any circumstance, and He will fulfill them in His own time and in His own way. But we must trust Him. We can trust Him. He is trustworthy. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the testimony of Joseph. He is a great encouragement to us in our times of trouble. May we adopt the same attitude as he did and learn to let you work out your will in your own way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace I need Thee, oh, I need Thee, every hour I need Thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. I
you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month. Mick Mulvaney says, Faith is driving many Trump administration policies. This is Keep the Faith Ministry News. I'm Richard Barnett. I'll be filling in for Hal Mayer while he's on medical leave. White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney declared at the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast on Tuesday, April 23rd, that faith drives the Trump administration's policy proposals, arguing that the principles of our faith are being manifest under the president's watch. Also, in attendance at the breakfast, a largely conservative religious gathering that meets annually in Washington were two deputy assistants to President Trump, United States Ambassador for International Religious Freedom Sam Brownback and Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey. Mulvaney, who is Catholic, opened his talk with an antidote about speaking several years ago at a prayer breakfast in his home state of South Carolina at the invitation of then-Senator Jim DeMint. Mulvaney explained that as a novice to prayer breakfast, he inadvertently chose to read a passage from the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus encourages believers to pray in private, not in public. He said a priest later interpreted the passage for him, arguing it does not bar public prayer, but is part of Jesus' call to do the opposite of what is popular. The Trump administration's policy agenda, Mulvaney suggested, constitutes just that sort of unpopular but faithful action. The president has allowed us, Christians of all denominations, folks from all different faiths, to be very vocal about their faith and to practice their faith and to take their faith and work it into our policies, he said. As examples, Mulvaney noted Trump's efforts to return Pastor Andrew Brunson from captivity in Turkey and recounted an experience of the president telling other world leaders in meetings that they are not doing enough to take care of the Christians in their country. Mulvaney also said the president personally added more discussion of abortion to this year's State of the Union address as a direct response to reports of government Ralph Northam voicing support for a bill that would loosen restrictions on late-term abortions in Virginia. I'm comfortable as a Catholic, even though I work for a gentleman who is not Roman Catholic, that the principles of our faith are alive and well and well-respected in this administration and are driving many of our policies, he said. That's something I'm extraordinarily proud to be a part of. Trump has publicly feuded with Pope Francis, who has criticized the president's border wall proposal and suggested in 2016 that the business mogul-turned-politician is not Christian because of his views on immigration. The chief of staff closed his talk by leading the assembly in a recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Do you think that the bishops are guiding the president through Mulvaney? Obviously, conservative Catholics are pleased with the way that Mr. Trump guides the policies of the United States in line with Catholic social teaching. Will these counselors, advisors, and managers one day press the president to enact worship laws? With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Revelation 17.2 Next. Early school enrollment for children may not work in their favor. Enrolling children into school too early may have dire consequences for their emotional and mental development. 
A new study by Harvard Medical School revealed that children who start the school year earlier than their peers might be at risk of being misdiagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. ADHD is a mental disorder typically characterized by symptoms such as hyperactivity and difficulty paying attention. Researchers found this to be true among children born in August who start school in the U.S. where enrollment is cut off at a September 1 birth date. The study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, showed that children born in August in those states are 30% more likely to receive an ADHD diagnosis compared with their slightly older peers enrolled in the same grade. Speaking to the Harvard Gazette, study lead author Timothy Layton, assistant professor of healthcare policy at the Blavatnik Institute at Harvard Medical School, said, Our findings suggest the possibility that large numbers of kids are being overdiagnosed and overtreated for ADHD because they happen to be relatively immature compared to their older classmates in the early years of elementary school. Hence, for states with a September 1 cutoff, children born on August 31st will be nearly a full year younger on the first day of school compared to a classmate born on September 1st, said the report. A younger child may be more fidgety compared to their older classmates and have more difficulty concentrating in class, which may lead to a medical referral and a diagnosis and treatment for ADHD. The researchers added that an 11 or 12 month difference in age could lead to significant differences in behavior. This finding is noteworthy and ADHD diagnosis and treatment rates have climbed dramatically over the last 20 years. However, the study's senior author, Anupam Jenis, said the rise in ADHD incidences are complex and multifactorial and arbitrary cutoff dates are likely to be one of the many variables driving this phenomenon. Some parents may feel the pressure to start their children's schooling at a younger age to help them succeed academically, but a Stanford study suggests that starting formal education at an older age may be more beneficial for children. The study, co-authored by Stanford Graduate School of Education professor Thomas D., found that children who started kindergarten a year later showed significantly lower levels of inattention and hyperactivity, which are jointly considered a key indicator of self-regulation. The beneficial result was found to persist even at age 11. We found that delaying kindergarten for one year reduced inattention and hyperactivity by 73% for an average child at age 11, said D in the report, and it virtually eliminated the probability that an average child at that age would have an abnormal or higher than normal rating for the inattentive, hyperactive behavioral measure. The report highlighted that in the psychology realm, the measure of inattention and hyperactivity The mental health traits behind ADHD effectively reflects the concept of self-regulation. A higher level of self-regulation, which describes a person's ability to control impulses and modulate behavior in attaining goals, is commonly linked to student achievement. Parents should be the only teachers of their children until they have reached 8 or 10 years of age. As fast as their minds can comprehend it, the parents should open before them God's great book of nature. Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 79. Next, the essence of evil, sex with children has become big business in America. Children, young girls, some as young as nine years old, are being bought and sold for sex in America. The average age for a young woman being sold for sex is now 13 years old. This is America's dirty little secret. Sex trafficking, especially when it comes to buying and selling of young girls, has become big business in America, the fastest growing business in organized crime and the second most lucrative commodity traded illegally after drugs and guns. As investigative journalist Amy Fine Collins notes, it's become more lucrative and much safer to sell malleable teens than drugs or guns. A pound of heroin or an AK-47 can be retailed once, but a young girl can be sold 10 to 15 times a day, and a righteous pimp confiscates 100% of her earnings. Consider this. Every two minutes, a child is exploited in the sex industry. According to USA Today, adults purchase children for sex at least 2.5 million times a year in the United States. Who buys a child for sex? otherwise ordinary men from all walks of life. 
They could be your coworker, doctor, pastor, or spouse, writes journalist Tim Swarns, who spent more than a year investigating the sex trade in America. In Georgia alone, it is estimated that 7,200 men, half of them in their 30s, seek to purchase sex with adolescent girls each month, averaging roughly 300 a day. On average, a child might be raped by 6,000 men during a five-year period of servitude. It is estimated that at least 100,000 children, girls and boys, are bought and sold for sex in the United States every year and as many as 300,000 children in danger of being trafficked each year. Some of these children are forcefully abducted, others are runaways, and still others are sold into the system by relatives and acquaintances. Human sex trafficking is on its way to becoming one of the worst crimes in the U.S., said Prosecutor Krishna Patel. This is an industry that revolves around cheap sex on the fly, with young girls and women who are sold to 50 men each day for $25 apiece, while their handlers make $150,000 to $200,000 per child each year. This is not a problem found only in big cities. It's happening everywhere, right under our noses, in suburbs, cities, and towns across the nation. As Ernie Allen of National Center for Missing and Exploited Children points out, the only way not to find this in any American city is simply not to look for it. Don't fool yourselves into believing that this is merely a concern for lower income communities or immigrants. It's not. It is estimated that there are 100,000 to 150,000 underage child sex workers in the U.S. These girls aren't volunteering to be sex slaves. They're being lured, forced, trafficked into it. In most cases, they have no choice. No doubt about it, this is a highly profitable, highly organized, and highly sophisticated sex trafficking business that operates in towns large and small, raking in upwards of $9.5 billion a year in the U.S. alone by abducting and selling young girls for sex. Every year, the girls being bought and sold gets younger and younger. The average age of those being trafficked is 13. Yet, as the head of a group that combats trafficking pointed out, let's think about what average means. That means that there are children younger than 13. That means 8, 9, 10-year-olds. For every 10 women rescued, there are 50 to 100 more women who are brought in by the traffickers. Unfortunately, they're not 18 or 20-year-olds anymore, noted a 25-year-old victim of trafficking. They're minors as young as 13 who are being trafficked. They're little girls. Where did this appetite for young girls come from? Look around you. Young girls have been sexualized for years now in music videos, on billboards, in television ads, and in clothing stores. Marketers have created a demand for young flesh and a ready supply of over-sexualized children. In other words, the porn culture is grooming these young people to be preyed upon by sexual predators. And then we wonder why our young women are being preyed on, trafficked, and abused. Social media makes it all too easy. As one news center reported, finding girls is easy for pimps. They look on MySpace, Facebook, and other social networks. They and their assistants cruise malls, high schools, and middle schools. They pick them up at bus stops, on the trolley. Girl-to-girl -girl recruitment sometimes happens. Rarely do these girls enter into prostitution voluntarily. Many start out as runaways or throwaways, only to be snatched up by pimps or larger sex rings. Others, persuaded to meet up with a stranger after interacting online through one of the many social networking sites, find themselves quickly initiated into their new lives as sex slaves. For those trafficked, it's a nightmare from beginning to end. Those being sold for sex have an average life expectancy of seven years, and those years are a living nightmare of endless rape, forced drugging, humiliation, degradation, threats, disease, pregnancies, abortions, miscarriages, torture, pain, and always the constant fear of being killed, or worse, having those you love hurt or killed. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents at the Cybercrime Center in Fairfax, Virginia, report that when it comes to sex, the appetites of many Americans have now changed. What was once considered abnormal is now the norm. These agents are tracking a clear spike in demand for a harder core pornography on the internet. As one agent noted, We've become desensitized by the soft stuff. Now we need a harder and harder hit. This growing evil is, for all intents and purposes, out in the open. Trafficked women and children are 
advertised on the internet, transported on the interstate, and bought and sold in swanky hotels. Indeed, the government's war on sex trafficking, much like the government's war on terrorism, drugs, and crime, has become a perfect excuse for inflicting more police state tactics, police checkpoints, searches, surveillance, and heightened security on a vulnerable public while doing little to make our community safer. That so many women and children continue to be victimized, brutalized, and treated like human cargo is due to three things. One, a consumer demand that is increasingly lucrative for everyone involved, except the victims. Two, a level of corruption so invasive on both a local and international scale that there is little hope of working through established channels for change. And three, an eerie silence from individuals who fail to speak out against such atrocities. You have to feel terrible for the young children abused in this way, but it is a sign of the times in which wickedness and evil are ever increasing. America is not the only place where this happens. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.